the role of alcohol was more as a kind of palliative for dealing with what we would now call PTSD. The casualties were pretty grim in these battles. And a lot of these guys who fought off German and Italian attacks on these mountaintops, they were very traumatized. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Now today I welcome Mark Urban onto the podcast. He's a familiar name here in the UK as one of Newsnight's presenters, but he's also the author of some fantastic history books. From his 18th and 19th century titles of rifles and generals, he's also written on tanks during the war. I've read a number of his books covering more contemporary events as well, including Big Boy's Rules, which looks at the role of the SAS in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, Task Force Black, about the SAS in Iraq, and the Skripal Files, which is fascinating, all about the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter in 2018 by the GRU, probably on Putin's orders. He's chatting to me about his latest, Red Devils, which is about the parachute regiment in the Second World War. Now, reading his book, it really does look into many of the features of warfare that probably don't get as much of an airing as they should. And so what you heard at the top there was an important thing to address booze whilst fighting. I don't know if you've ever read Journey's End by R.C. Sheriff or seen it performed. There was a recent film made in 2017, but booze features heavily and that was set in the trenches of the Great War. Alcohol and war have gone together since antiquity. Who can forget Alexander the Great's big drinking bouts? We also talk about the genesis of the Paris, their commander, Boy Browning, and the debacle that was Operation Market Garden a.k.a. A Bridge Too Far. Coming up, I'm going to have a few bonus podcasts for you. In light of last week's chat with Simon Seabag Montefiore on family world history, I'm going to do a top 10 of historical families. If you've got any suggestions, let me know either on the Twitter or email me, history at aspectsofhistory.com. All links are in the show notes. In December, I'm going to dedicate a bonus episode to top historical movies. Now, I know you might be thinking, or some of you might be thinking, well, we've already heard yours. But I'm going head-to-head with an industry professional, writer and director Tim Hewitt. Whilst I bring some historical knowledge, he's coming at us with technical expertise. If you can subscribe, please do. In the meantime, I'll hand you over to me talking with Mark Urban. Mark Urban, welcome to the uh, Aspects of History podcast. Hi, Oliver. Uh, good of you to have me. Well, Mark, I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you because um, uh, I have read a number of your books over the years and uh, it's always a great pleasure to read yours. And, and uh, I've just finished Thank your you. latest, Red Devils. And then, but just before we kick off, I have to tell you, Mark, you are not the first Newsnight presenter to have been on this podcast. Jeremy Paxman has been on. Hallowed footsteps. Yes, big shoes to fill. Um, He was was, um, uh, talking about his book on coal. Have you read that? Sorry to say I haven't. I'm sure it's good. It is. Um, is. But in the general logjam of the last few months, I haven't been able to read it. I saw he had it out. It's great that he's got another book out. Mm. And and I, I was interested in that because how do you juggle? I mean, this is uh, an authorized history of of the parachute regiment in World War II, um, but how do you juggle 
what is a full-on job at Newsnight presenting and 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 I know you've mentioned you're about to um, travel to Taiwan how do you juggle that with um writing books because you're quite prolific as well well it's certainly uh it's certainly not easy I mean you're right it is a full-on job um I think what I do is because my day is back to front um, and I'm working in the evening when most people are at home um, opening a bottle of wine and uh, reading and, you know, playing with the kids or whatever. uh, It does mean that I tend to have the mornings free, uh, which is useful for research time. Um, But there does come a moment when I need to write a book uh, and get the first draft down. Uh, And at that moment, I take unpaid leave from the BBC and it normally I factor in about two months for that, depending on how long I think the book is going to be, uh, to, 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 to just sit down and methodically just get it down in first draft form. Um, and then, you know, once again, once you've done that, the sort of editing process and revisiting and redrafting can be done on the weekends and mornings and, and other times. So. It is a labour of love, certainly, uh, to work in this way. I, I sometimes say um, it's a bit like me driving a cab, you know, in terms of uh, being a second job and, and adding to the general stresses and strains of modern life. Yeah. Um, now, what's interesting about this book is it's, it is authorised. Um, a number of your books in the past, you've, I think you've had to struggle um, with getting through the MOD and, and other organisations like this. W- did you work closely with the Parachute Regiment um, or, or their um, archives uh, for this book? You're right that uh, in the past, when I've been writing about current events and sensitive matters relating, for example, to um, special operations uh, in Iraq, you know, I mean, clearly when, when you're writing about special forces and intelligence uh, based operations and things like that. It, it is a much more sensitive area. Um, it is true, though, that, that that this book is, well, it's different in the sense that obviously it's historical. So in that sense, it's less sensitive from the point of view of, of the MOD or the Parachute Regiment or whatever. Uh, and it's also true to say that um, whereas in the past, uh, pretty much every book I've done was an initiative that I took this was an initiative from Penguin, who said they wanted the book. And I think at a pretty early stage, um, got involved with the Air Assault Museum at Duxford. And uh, that they are obviously their civilians there, but they work closely with the Parachute Regiment and other elements of their airborne forces and catalogue their story. And so from the get-go, the uh, curator of the museum, John Baker, and the other staff were really quite involved actually in guiding me to the best archive that they had and that kind of thing. And and then just across the way there at Duxford, you've got the IWM's archives. uh, And, you know, obviously I made a lot of use of those as well. Uh, So there were rather a lot of trips to Duxford uh, while I was researching this. Um, and, And that's where, you know, an awful lot of the really prized you know the journals or the uh you know it was the case i think with many people who went through world war ii that um um people would write these sort of memoirs often typescript sometimes longhand for their families in the 50s and 60s some even in the 70s a sort of what did you do in the war dad type of account that was really just intended for circulation among family and friends 
And I found when I was writing uh, the Tank Wars book about the uh, 5th Royal Tank Regiment in World War II, that they were really interesting and valuable accounts. And lo and behold, I found a few of those in the, in the Imperial War Museum's archives at Duxford. And they're really good at bringing alive, um, you know, the life, the sort of interior life of the parachute regiment in its early days and early campaigns. And like those earlier books, I've tried to sort of home in on specific unit or battalion uh, and certain characters within it. So, you know, the unifying theme through the book is the second battalion of the parachute regiment. And in the, in the early pioneering days, before they left uh, Britain, uh, we find the main characters all sort of training together. Um, you know, in, in one case, three of the six uh, main featured players are all on the same training jump in the same plane with only 10 people in it. So that was quite handy narratively to find them all in the same place. Uh, and that's what I've done. So to come back, circle back to your question, um, it really was a partnership, particularly with the uh, Airborne Assault Museum from the get go. Uh, and therefore, yes, uh, at a certain point, pretty late on, the parachute regiment itself uh, took a look at it. Uh, but by that point, the Air Assault Museum uh, had already had it had its, you know, um, crawled on over it and inspected it and, and looked at the manuscript, you know, uh, to, 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 to make sure there weren't mistakes. Now, I bet that there probably are still one or two mistakes in there, um, and, and for which in normal authorly fashion, I take full responsibility. Uh, but they did. And, and in fact, uh, a few people from that community, uh, historians of the Parachute Regiment, uh, looked over it um, to make sure that um, there weren't any uh, ghastly I'm sure not. I'm sure not. Well, you do, you always do. You know, I, Oliver, I always say that that when you write a sort of heavily factual book, as I tend to do, and let's say you've got uh, 20 or 25 facts per page. Um, if you have a 99% uh, rate of being correct uh, and right in what you've written, you're still going to have a mistake every four or five pages. Now, in the hands of a hostile reviewer, that is, this book contains dozens of errors, which may be true. I clearly hope it isn't in my case. But if you then turn it around the other way and say, yes, but it's 99% right, uh, that, that's the difficulty, I think. And, and in this area of history, there are, of course, a lot of very, very enthusiastic amateur uh, historians and, and enthusiasts who you know, all the way from the people who meticulously comb the records uh, in uh, the Hartenstein Museum in Arnhem, you know, the, and a lot of Dutch people actually very, very passionately uh, invested in the history of that campaign, for example, through to the kind of living history people, the war gamers, you know, th there is a big community of people who will be pouring over every detail in this. Um, and of course, in some cases where they say, no, you got this wrong. In fact, of course, they're wrong uh, because they haven't investigated it to the degree that you have. And in some cases, you know, it's fuzzier. There's more than one truth. Um, and there are different versions of events or whatever. I've tried, to, uh, I'm trying to um, restrain from asking you what your biggest error is in, in previous books, but I'm, I'm, I won't ask that. That's a very horrible question. Um, but it's it's interesting the the parachute regiment I, I, um, to me because with with the SAS they're very careful 
about their reputation in in history books are the parachute regiment less less so or or um less sensitive because i i suppose they don't go on so secret as operations as, as the ses do um but is there a, is there a um a sort of nervousness about their reputation well i think i i'm sure the parachute regiment is keen to protect its reputation in the day-to-day sense you know like when some dreadful thing happens on an exercise and people are drunk and you know whatever you know i'm sure they're sensitive to that um i think the key point here though is um and i think you know this is this is the interesting one for a podcast like yours the point at which uh these episodes pass from living history into deeper history now, um, the Air, Airborne uh, Museum at Duxford were very, very quick to tell me when we started, because obviously the focus was on the 2nd Battalion, particularly in the context of Arnhem, were very quick to tell me there are no, we are not aware of any surviving member of the 2nd Battalion who dropped at Arnhem, which obviously is a bit of an eye-opener, um, but, but there it is. There, there are some Arnhem survivors, clearly, who are still alive. Um, but, but from the 2nd Battalion at Arnhem, they said, we don't think there are any left now so you know one can quibble about well yeah there's a handful from the ninth or the 12th battalions in normandy or whatever yeah i mean yes of course there are still some survivors left of the wartime parachute regiment but there's very few sadly and and even those that, that do survive to today uh, you know that they are passing on very quickly so this history i think is now moving into a slightly different uh, category and they said from the outset, actually, um, you know, tell it like it is. Uh, we're quite prepared for you to do, you know, to discuss subjects like people's nerve going, uh, running away or surrendering or stuff like that in circumstances where they might have fought on. Uh, all of those quite sensitive topics, which, for example, if you look at some of the books produced soon after the war, like uh, The Red Berets, which is a very good book, but you know, it, it, it treads carefully uh, over some of those subjects because so many of the people involved in those operations were still alive. And I think we've, we've passed on from that now. Um, and, and I think from the point of view of Penguin and, and the museum, they'd read the Tank War book, which did deal pretty frankly with things like circumstances like guys bailing out of tanks through fear, you know, that they were about to be knocked out by tigers or whatever, or, or indeed um, shooting people who were trying to, shooting Germans who were attempting to surrender and how that happened a few times and what the circumstances were and whether it was or wasn't a kind of dubious act. So, so those subjects were dealt with pretty frankly in the tank uh, book. Um, so I think they knew that I would, uh, deal pretty straight on so there, there is for example um an exploration in the book of whether or not general gale who was the commander of the sixth airborne uh, division which which landed very successfully on d-day and did a, a fantastic job but whether he had given an order that they shouldn't take prisoners um and that that's dealt with in in the book um it's pretty clear that in, in his uh, pep talks to some of the units, he did say that. He did say on that first night or whatever, you know, don't mess about, don't take prisoners. In other words, that, that getting to their objectives uh, superseded all other uh, interests. 
Now, obviously, you're looking back on that 80 years on, that seems like a pretty dubious order to give people. But I also discussed through through looking at some of the cases where uh, prisoners either were killed or were not, uh, the fact that clearly many soldiers didn't take that order literally and hundreds of prisoners were taken, uh, German prisoners in the first 24 hours. So, you know, that kind of thing is quite a complex subject. But I think I think it is true to say that as it passes from living history uh, into deeper history, uh, one can have a, a, a more a frank uh, discussion about it. Um, well, the genesis of the um, of, of the whole um, airborne, um, I, I guess, I'm trying to, you, you, you as a military man know the terminology, it comes naturally to you, to, uh, but is it the airborne sort of brigade or division probably is more accurate. It, it, it Quite late on in the war, uh, and I, you mentioned in the book um, the Germans had, had, had done this in the 30s, the, the Americans I think as well, um, even the Italians. Um, why were we so late? I, I, and greatest respect to Italians who listen, by the way. Yeah, well, they were, I mean, one thing you can say about the Italian forces in the 30s, I mean, they were very innovative in certain respects. Uh, you know, people write about their naval frogmen, you know, and, and, uh, and they, were, they were innovators in military uh, parachuting as well. The, the only three countries that had taken it really seriously in the interwar years were the Soviet Union, Germany and Italy. Uh, and they all had significant airborne forces in being at the start of the war. And of course, the Germans in Belgium, the Netherlands, Norway, Greece, used airborne landings very successfully as part of their blitzkrieg formula uh, for so-called, uh, particularly for so-called coup de main operations, uh, stroke of the hand, or however you want to translate it. But that the idea being that you would drop ahead of advancing troops and seize a key bridge or neutralize a key strong point in the case of Belgium, uh, and that would make the wider advance uh, go uh, more quickly and more smoothly. So, yeah, they were all invested in it um, in the 1930s in a substantial way. Um, the British had not done that. And really the genesis of the uh, creation of the Parachute Regiment and Airborne Forces more widely was in June of 1940, when Churchill issued an order saying we need a corps of parachutists uh, and he suggested it be about 5,000 soldiers. Um, now, one of the interesting things uh, that happened then is what didn't happen, which was then basically an enormous amount of time wasting by the RAF that didn't really want to give the army, the aeroplanes, to, to, to bring to fruition uh, Churchill's vision. The army did start to form units and critically... Uh, just over a year after Churchill's order, they put this army-wide uh, appeal out for volunteers and they got a couple of thousand of quite uh, characters, a lot of them quite extraordinary coming forward. So you, you had a mobilised army in the millions, but you had them looking for sort of the 2,000, uh, in a way, who were keenest to get into action or to volunteer for something special and dangerous and different. So a, a pretty extraordinary band of people came forward. And I mean, you were everything paid more. from, you know. You were paid more, weren't you? Yep, yep. Very important. Two bob a day, as they used to say. Uh, yep, pa parachute pay. Uh, yep, so you got more money. You got the prospect of action and you got something exciting and, and with an air of sort of being elite about it. So, so they did get guys and they were... 
they were actually, if you look at the people that came forward, they, they were very similar to those, the profile of people who in the, in the post-war period, the post-war army, we would say, would typically have gone forward for SAS selection. So uh, they were older, you know, they weren't 19 year old conscripts by and large. They were guys in their 20s, some of them even in their 30s. Um, and a lot of them had been in action before. And the, when the first parachute battalion was formed in 1941, uh, one of the officers in it said 70% of them had been in action before, uh, which is pretty remarkable. They were either professional soldiers who'd been serving on the northwest frontier of India, but some of them had done things like like being in international brigades in Spain, the French Foreign Legion. I mean, they were a real bunch of, of, of you know, hoary adventurers who came forward in that first wave. And they were used to for, form the first four battalions uh, of paratroopers, about 550 men in each battalion. And eventually, in the uh, late on in 1942, after all this wrangling about missions and aircraft and all the rest of it, they were sent to North Africa uh, to be part of the effort there to, to, to do this sort of coup de main concept, to go ahead, seize a key pass in the mountains or a key airfield and ease the passage forward of the Allied armies that had landed in Algeria uh, and uh, were coming into the rear, if you like, of, of Rommel's Africa Corps at the time and the Italian forces in North Africa. So that was their first big mission. Uh, but that was the genesis of it. It was Churchill in 1940. And to be frank, when Churchill issued that order, it was only a few weeks apart from the order he issued setting up the Special Operations Executive uh, with the, or, with the uh, famous word, set Europe ablaze. And I think, I think really what Churchill had in mind when he issued that first order in 1940 was the idea that following Dunkirk, you know, we had to do something for the sake of morale, for the sake of keeping the Germans on their toes. And therefore, what we should be doing is sponsoring and assisting saboteurs from the French resistance or the Dutch resistance, whatever, raids by parachutists, such as the one that was eventually carried out at the beginning of 1942 by the 2nd Battalion uh, of the Parachute Regiment, and doing this at a sort of quite a small scale. So, you know, a few saboteurs or 120 soldiers who were landed in Normandy in 1942 to raid the Bruneval uh, radar station, I beg your pardon. So, so that, was that was the concept initially. And that's why the fact that so many of these people who came forward were the sort of what we would now think of as the special forces type of soldier, you know, wayward uh, individuals who'd been in combat, who, who despised garrison life and square bashing and Blanco and all the rest of it and just wanted to get stuck in. And yet that was all, you know, all seemed to sort of match up. But of course, what then happened was when they sent them to Tunisia, it became clear that, no, these guys weren't going to go on daring missions uh, overnight for a few hours and then be picked up as they were in Bruneval. They were going to have to fight in the mountains of Tunisia for months in the most terrible circumstances. Basically, um, uh, to outperform the regular infantry of the British Army, which, you know, in some of those battles inevitably got into difficulty and the paratroopers had to be there to essentially be better soldiers than them uh, and to be a better kind of line of battle infantry, not guys with daggers clenched in their teeth, uh, uh, shinning up cliffs uh, and carrying out raids at a small level. 
Uh, and that's really the, the story of the sort of organizational transformation that takes place during the war that I describe in the book about how that happened and what the key moments were and, and how the individuals responded to that. And you mentioned that the, the characters who, who volunteer, who are, you know, they're, 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 yeah, I guess they are, yeah, they are, and they're mentioned throughout the book as, as being, they're told they're the elite. And so they obviously feel like they're the elite. But their first command, well, the, 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 the most famous commander probably um, is, is Boy Browning, who is this sort of Grenadier Guards officer who does like drilling and, and neat uniforms. And so he, he doesn't really, um, he's not a hugely popular commander, is he? No. I think before I go further, um, the Webb Carters are a guards family, aren't they? Indeed. I, I remember David. But, um, was David but in the Irish guards? My father is the Irish guards, so you can slag off the yeah. Grenadier guards. Uh, that's my <laughs> uncle, Evelyn. <laughs> well, I, I, I thought I might be treading here on hallowed, go hallowed for it. ground. Um, yeah, well, in a way, I mean, the, the, Browning is a, is a sort of fantastically problematic uh, historical figure. Obviously, a lot of people know about him as portrayed by Dirk Bogard in the film A Bridge Too Far and understand uh, about his role in Arnhem and, and, you know, should he have gone, should he have attempted to lead in the field, did he deliberately set aside intelligence that cast those sorts of I'm very keen to talk about this actually yeah, yeah. yeah. those sorts of historical controversies but um uh, just as interesting to me was uh, Browning's role in setting up this new regiment because let's face it you know you you know army families and we've just been joking about the difference between the Irish Guards and the Grenadiers and all that sort of stuff and the cold streams and, and they are tribal organizations in many ways and if you're going to establish a new regiment, uh, eventually, as it was called, the parachute regiment, you're going to have to create the tribal symbols, the badges, the, the shoulder flash, uh, you know, the power wings, all these other things that become the, the key factors in defining how people look, uh, the things they've got to go through, you know, Pegasus Company, as it's now called, but the initial training that was carried out at Hardwick Hall during the war uh, to basically select the fittest guys and get them ready for parachute training. All that stuff, um, uh, you know, is enormously important in defining what is a new regiment, what is its ethos, what are its values? And Browning was undoubtedly critically important in that. He was also fantastically good at getting things out of other bits of the army. He was a supreme networker. He had fantastic social connections. He was married to the novelist Daphne du Maurier. He'd been at Eton. He knew ministers. He knew loads of generals. Uh, and he could get all sorts of things. So those 2,000 guys who used to form the first four battalions. Equipment, you know, buying Jeeps when he, when he saw them demonstrated because he realised that Jeeps could be fitted into gliders and provide mobility on the ground. Uh, organizing, you know, what shape should an air, a parachute battalion be compared to different, all these things. Browning was tremendously important. But there was an aspect in which I think his uh, mindset and grounding in the army, in, in the traditions of the guards, was a problem in, in bringing together all these wild soldiers and, uh, you know, mixing them then in with citizen soldiers, the national service uh, 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 soldiers who had... Uh, been conscripted but then volunteered for parachute duties 
And there were lots of clashes, I think, in values because because Browning's thought was, well, okay, you've all got to have the same, you know, airborne flash or whatever. That that will help you feel a sense of unity. You'll all have done the same seven jumps and, and had that sense of achievement that you've conquered your fear. All good. But he thought, well, you know, what do we do in the army? How do we bind people together? Well, one of the ways we do it is we can do it by region. So you can say, okay, well, A company of the second battalion is going to come from London, B company from the north, C company from Scotland. That's what they tried doing, using people's regional affiliations. But he was also all for a tremendous amount of, you know, drill, square bashing, marching people up and down. Well, you've got light infantrymen who, who march much faster. You know, you've got other regiments with other traditions. No, we've got to make them all the same. We've got to drill them up and down so they can all march together and all be the same in that respect and unify in that way. Well, obviously, for a lot of these guys who were just thirsting for action and volunteered for special missions, a load of parade ground drill was the last thing they wanted. So there was a lot of fractiousness. And I think while one can sort of, in many ways, discount that in the National Service Army, the wartime army is, you know, the perpetually browned off sort of Tommy Atkins, you know, puffing away on his ciggy outside the cookhouse and always having something to complain about. I think they had real reason to complain, these guys. Um, uh, they're, they're, there's one of the central characters in the book who writes, and he wrote this in 1943. You know, we, we were training to, to fight the Germans. We were not training for a drill competition. Uh, you know, th this was their resentment. They just thought, why are we wasting time doing this kind of stuff? A tremendous emphasis on what Browning called turnout as well. Not just, you know, highly polished boots and creases in your battle dress, but clean fingernails. He would get soldiers to take their boots off when inspecting them on the parade ground to make sure that their socks didn't have holes in. The haircuts, all of these details were things that he drilled down on and which basically uh, drove to distraction a lot of the soldiers who had been assembled for this new special force. And you can say, well, all right, OK, you know, garrisons and uh, you know, sometimes people have martinet tendencies or they get carried away. You know, once it gets to the field, you know, the realities take over. But even in North Africa, the soldiers found that they were being uh, forced by their commanders to salute. Now, there's an order that comes out which says, you know, basically, we've got slack about saluting. So soldiers will salute in and out of the line now. If I was a platoon commander crawling up to my frontline positions in Tunisia with German paratroopers, you know, a few hundred yards away, I'm not sure I'd want my soldiers to salute me. You know, it, it might just point out who is the guy for the sniper to, um, uh, to pick off. But lo and behold, the order came down, as did orders about not wearing uh, anything other than steel helmets during daytime, uh, not wearing their berets at night, you know, uh, it's standing in trenches for days at a time, waterlogged, you know. The soldiers felt outraged about these, this. And in the final analysis, the one that really got people going was an order that when the soldiers were killed, and generally they used the soldiers' blankets that they'd been issued with to carry the corpses down to collection point or burial point, and an order came down, you must recover those blankets and put them back into stores. And I think on that one, a lot of the, a lot of the troops in the line just, just ignored it. You know, they, they just felt so outraged that, that um, someone was not even going to ha have the dignity of being dropped into their resting place, wrapped in a blanket. So there were these kinds of petty 
uh, orders, which characterised the early days of the regiment. And I think certainly with regards to the preoccupation with drill and turnout were very much part of Browning's mindset. And, and when he left the scene, uh, you can see things changing in all sorts of ways uh, and a lesser uh, interest in that. Although, you know, they, they always tried to say that they tried to be the best in all things, including, you know, smartness and, and being when they were on parade and all the rest of it. But, you know, uh, more of an attention to, to the direct military business of getting guys fit uh, and confronting the enemy. And there, there seemed to be a certain informality as well uh, um, that that came out in the book. I, I mean, in particular, I'm thinking of a, a, an example where I think it's Forsyth, Sergeant Forsyth, had his commander up, uh, sort of sort of cornered him and, and, and told him, you're drinking, you shouldn't be drinking. Forsyth is a fascinating character because he is a regular army man. In many ways, he was the sort of guy who Browning... Uh, expected to instill discipline in the newcomers. He'd been uh, a soldier uh, for 10 years by the point you mentioned. Uh, so, you know, he'd served in the 1930s. He, he'd been in the Argyle and Southern Highlanders and then volunteered uh, for spe uh, special duties, he had parachute duties, and was on one of the first courses to be trained in airborne warfare. But Forsyth was the son of a militant miner who had been sacked from a variety of collieries for, for trying to organize uh, trade union activities in those, in those mines. So Forsyth had a real sense of class antagonism and he uh, basically had a problem with officers um, and he couldn't curb his temper. And in the uh, moment you mentioned, he decided having been through these awful battles in Tunisia where he felt you know, it was him and the other NCOs that had held the line and certain officers who'd let them down. He felt he had the right to confront uh, one of the officers uh, about his drinking as he saw it. Now, I mean, it's an interesting point. It's, I, I don't know whether that speaks to uh, uh, less formality or greater informality in the regiment or whether it simply spoke to the fact that uh, a lot of those early volunteers were were very strong characters uh, and and were not just couldn't just be relied upon to button their lip and go along with the hierarchy. Um, I mean, I would say, if anything, um, that, that the parachute regiment, in common with the rest of the uh, uh, with the rest of the infantry uh, in the in the Second World War, from all the accounts I've read. Uh, remained more formal or, or more likely to obey uh, the standard disciplinary rules than, for example, tank crews, where, where uh, having you know got right into that in the previous book, um, there was that business of, of you know literally sitting in a tight metal box and sharing the destiny of you know not being able to get out if you were under fire for twenty four hours at a time, having to pee in a shell case you know, literally having all the smells and everything else of your fellow crewmen, that the, the, the junior officers who were in the tanks and, and the troopers or corporals or whoever who were in there with them, I think they, they had a great degree of informality. Uh, but I think in the parachute regiment, uh, because of the nature of, you know, closing, closing to, to, to combat, sometimes with the bayonet, but certainly up close and personal with the enemy, I think there was a greater formalism, actually, than, than the tank crews and some of the other elements of the army. Uh, but still, I digress. Uh, I, I think the reason Sergeant Forsyth 
lost his rag with that guy was because of the type of man he was, really. And the boozing was interesting to me because booze must have been quite a key part of, for, for many soldiers because, you know, they're, they're, they're carrying out horrific um, uh, acts of, of bravery, you know, jumping out of a plane. It would seem to me to be quite a common thing for, for all ranks to be to be drinking. No, I, I don't want to imply, though, that they're all raving alcoholics, but... Booze must have been quite commonplace amongst um, uh, serving men during the war. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it. I think w- w- what happened. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, even before, for example, we take the second parachute battalion. Even before uh, they went to North Africa, they had a terrible reputation among uh, publicans. Uh, one of whom christened them "them yellow bastards" because they had yellow lanyards at that time. The second battalion. Because uh, and they were banned from various pubs uh, uh, because of the kind of uh, wild uh, drinking and uh, and the fights that were breaking out. I think that that was in a sense the, to do with the fact that they were all yearning for action and they were they were like you know uh, caged war dogs or whatever whatever uh, metaphor you want to use. But I think once they got to Tunisia and they really got stuck into the ghastly reality of this you know holding these. Uh, trenches atop um, uh, mountain ridges in North Africa in bitterly cold winter there. The role of alcohol was more as a kind of palliative for dealing with what we would now call PTSD. The casualties were pretty grim in these battles. And a lot of these guys who fought off German and Italian attacks on these mountaintops, they were very traumatised. Uh, and so I think when one reads the accounts of them you know, being given a run into Algiers or or somewhere else and really getting blasted and, 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 you know, the military police having to scoop them up and the fights and all the rest of it. I think that that element of, of trauma and, 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 you know, mourning the lost comrades and doubting their own chances for survival all contributed to that kind of uh, bacchanalia, you know, when, when they were given the chance to, to run off the leash in, into local North African towns and, and Johnny Frost, who was the commander, the commanding officer of the second battalion, and is another one of the central characters in the book, he he was just sort of bemused by this. He couldn't understand, you know, why the soldiers were so wild when they were let off the leash in these North African uh, uh, bars, and he 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 struggled to try and work out how he should deal with it. What, what he should do because obviously he was concerned about the reputation of his battalion uh, and the scraps with other units and the constant issues with the military police and he really struggled with that and I'm not sure he ever completely understood it he later commented uh, later on in the war oh well uh, you know uh, eventually we got the right sort of non-commissioned officers you know the sergeants and corporals who knew how to manage this but I wonder you know, really a big part of it was that by the time they went to Arnhem, for example, the 2nd Battalion, it, it, it was at least 70% um, soldiers who hadn't been in North Africa. So many had been lost, uh, either as prisoners or wounded and killed in North Africa and Sicily, that a lot of those wild early veterans had gone. Uh, and he had what were more like the typical National Service soldiers by that point of the world war, who were more accepting of authority and just wanted to do the right thing and not get 
returned to their original unit or thrown out or court-martialed. They just wanted to keep their, their nose clean. Now, Frost himself, of course, uh, is an interesting example when one talks about drink. Uh, I mean, he, he uh, it's very clear from, from listening to the interviews with the other uh, officers that served with him uh, in, uh, in North Africa, for example, in the Imperial War Museum Sound Archive, uh, and one of them says, you know, if there was any uh, officer who drank more than uh, Alistair Pearson, who commanded the 1st Battalion, it was Johnny Frost. Uh, and Johnny Frost was well aware of the fact that he used whiskey a lot uh, to, if you like, uh, uh, self-medicate uh, amid the stresses of, of that campaign. And he even, when he wrote his uh, autobiography, he called it a drop too many, which clearly was a pun on the bridge too far but also an allusion to his uh, fondness for the Scotch. A Bridge Too Far, you've mentioned that. It's iconic film. The book is, is very good, based on the, the Cornelius Ryan book. But And reading your book after Normandy, which is a great success for the Paras, I, I got the sense that um, with a number of operations being planned in, in the area around Arnhem and, 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 um, and Holland, that the the senior uh, officers, the senior commanders, have this uh, airborne brigade, and they want to use it, and or uh, airborne division rather. Uh, and so they, it seems as though they've got this sort of hammer, and everything looks like a nail, and and therefore Operation Market Garden will do that because we've got all these airborne troops. Um, this seems like it'll work. And it, it having read, I've read your book, uh, the Cornelius Ryan book, and I think the, the Beaver book, I, it is extraordinary to me that, that it even went ahead, the whole operation. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I think your uh, interpretation or reading of it is very fair. I mean, look, they'd had uh, 16 or 17 planned, well, Operation Market, I think, was the 17th plan that was drawn up after D-Day um, for possibly using the 1st Airborne Division, uh, which had come back from North Africa, but it hadn't done the D-Day landings. That, that job was done by a different one, the 6th Airborne Division, different British one. So they were all yearning to get into action. And from fairly soon after the D-Day landings, they were thinking, oh, well, maybe we could drop behind the Germans in Normandy and stop them getting away. Or maybe we could drop in the west of France, or maybe we could drop on the Belgian border to once again stop them getting away or take advantage of so all these plans came up one after another and at various points uh, some of them even got to the point where you know the paratroopers would be driven out by truck to the air, air, airfields and the Dakotas would line up and everybody would be waiting for the order to go but it didn't happen um, and so yes I, I definitely think there was an element of that there was a feeling look we've got these highly trained British and American airborne divisions and they could make a big strategic difference if we get this right. But time and again, that, that sort of sweet spot between the time it would take to actually prepare an effective and worthwhile operation and events not changing on the ground so quickly that that would then be rendered useless, that planning. You know, they got on the wrong side of that equation uh, at time after time. You know, events just moved on too quickly for them to you know, stop the Germans retreating out of Normandy or the various other ideas they had. So eventually when the, when the, uh, the idea of dropping to take the three uh, bridges uh, occurred, you know, Operation Market um, in uh, September, early September, it was spun up 
uh, yeah, there were guys who were just so fed up. I mean, there was one staff officer who, in his Imperial War Museum uh, interview, he says, you know, I had spent three years being buggered about uh, and, you know, I was damned if I wasn't going to go on, on this operation. And then fantastically, he said, if they'd asked us to drop in Berlin and wait for the arrival of the Red Army, we would have done it, you know, which I mean, it's just extraordinary. Of course, of course that is post-war hyperbole. But it, it um, I think it speaks to their determination to just get into action. And I think there was a, a slightly odd duality about this and, and a sort of gallows humour as well, because a lot of them realised that these plans were pretty dubious. Uh, I mean, at the briefing for Operation Comet, which was a sort of previous version of, of the uh, Operation Market Plan, you know, to seize those bridges, but to do it just with the British Airborne Division, uh, one of the officers turned to the other who'd been given this job of, of rushing onto a bridge and taking it and said, a Victoria Cross or a Wooden Cross, old boy, sort of thing. And another guy, a subaltern in, in the 2nd uh, Parachute Battalion, wrote in his diary after their briefing for Operation Comet, it all seemed like a rather elaborate way of committing suicide. So um, they knew, you know, they knew it was dangerous. And yet at the same time, many of them absolutely yearned for it. Uh, they knew there was a big element. There, there'd been this... Um, shorthand used in the 2nd Battalion mess for a good year before Operation Market, the bloodbath. Oh, you know, we, we've got to get to the bloodbath. And they would use it in a sort of gallows humour sort of way as, as being something that, yes, would be terrible and intensely risky for them personally, but they didn't intend to miss. So there it is. There's the attitude, that, that sort of duality of it. I mean, I found a letter, uh, I think it was written in the early 1950s, so relatively soon after the war, uh, from uh, Brigadier Lathbury, the commander of the 1st uh, uh, Parachute Brigade, whose job it was to go and seize the Arnhem Bridges, um, in which he said uh, the plan only ever could have worked against minimal opposition. Um, and that's, that our assumption was there would only be minimal opposition. It could only have ever worked against minimal opposition. And I, I mean, he's obviously right. Uh, and clearly, uh, by that point, had the benefit of hindsight. But it was that kind of um, belief that, uh, you know, if you were sufficiently daring, the enemy sufficiently disorganised, it just might work. Uh, that seems to have been the underpinning of that uh, ill-fated operation. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, clearly it's a thing. It, it, it's, I think, the one aspect of the Parachute Regiment story uh, that, if anything, has been told and retold too many times since the war, because there's such enormous sort of interest in it uh, and I find that in itself fascinating because you know you look at the operations in Normandy which yes they, they have received a certain amount of historical attention the seizing of these key bridges and denial of others to the Germans on the flank of the of the British landing fantastically successful uh, yes there have been books about the 9th battalion seizing the Merville battery and the 7th battalion seizing those two bridges over the Orne and the canal but not nearly as much. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the war, you know, Operation Varsity, which effectively does what Market Garden was meant to do, it gets the Allied army there in northern Germany across the Rhine, very successful as well, uh, but very little written about it after the war. Uh, and so there you are, you know, that is Market Garden. It's the thing that continues to exert this fascination uh, on so many people, including, of course, the, 
you know, the Dutch uh, who live in those areas where it happened and, and who still enthusiastically, you know, you get the school children uh, putting the flowers on the fallen uh, uh, soldiers' graves every year, the commemorations, the civic aspects of it. It's extraordinary uh, the, the depth of, of interest and attachment still to that, to that campaign. Well, there's a, a beautiful picture in the book of, um, it's very sad, it's very moving, is, is uh, a picture of a, a cross with a paratrooper's helmet on it um, being um, sort of looked at by a, a, a soldier who's liberated Arnhem in April, is it April 45? Ah, oh, well, I think you might be, there's two pictures. There is one, as you say, of a cross with, I think it says, I'll just have a look in Dutch, yeah. unknown unknown uh, British soldier in Arnhem, as you say, after liberation. But there's another one in a graveyard in Normandy yes. where yes. the soldier is I'm crouching thinking, down. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, unknown English soldier, it says, on the with a terrible you know, helmet with a bullet hole through it, on the cross in Arnhem. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the other photo, which I think is in there to underline the sort of awful human cost, is, is one in a, in a churchyard in in Normandy, where a couple of guys from the 7th Battalion, which is the, the other unit whose story we follow quite a bit in the book, uh, because their, their battles were all different to those of the 2nd Battalion. And yeah, he, he's visiting the graves of a couple of his mates in, in that churchyard. Uh, I mean, terrible loss rates. Uh, I mean, the 7th mm -hmm. Battalion on D-Day uh, had 68 uh, soldiers killed. Uh, I mean, what a what a tremendous loss in one day. And of course, uh, another double that figure wounded. Uh, enormous losses from a unit of only 550 people. So, um, yeah. Mark, Mark I, I could talk to you probably about this for a, a lot longer, but um, we're running out of time. So I, I suppose uh, my, my final question really is, um, what are you working on next? It's a good question, but it's not really one I can answer, not because I'm, I'm doing something incredibly sensitive and secret that would get me clapped in irons if I, if I revealed it to you. But I haven't yet settled uh, on a subject for the next one. And what do you think? It's of? interesting. Um, there, are lots of things I say? there are lots of things I could do. Um, uh, I think it's fair to say, I mean, I would like to go back into, you know, deeper into history. I love the early, uh, late 18th, early uh, 19th century period, Napoleonic and Revolutionary period. Oh, I wanted uh, to pick you up on something. You didn't put Sir John Moore in your book of generals. Ah, yes. Well, there's, <laughs> there's well, that's a whole, uh, well, uh, Bill Slim, of course, is uh, one that I get that's true criticised yeah. for as well, but. Yeah, well, maybe we should do second tier generals. Um, yeah, no, I love that period. I mean, it is true that in terms of, of the publishing and the marketing of books, uh, the Second World War is particularly uh, still a very big and hot subject. So it may be that I come back to another Second World War uh, topic or indeed something closer to the present day. I mean, listen, I've done all three types of book in the past, World War II, Deep History, and current affairs, uh, stroke, um, sensitive stuff, whatever we're going to call it, special operations. Um, so, yeah, it could be any one of those things, I would imagine. Well, Mark, thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Oliver. Coming up, I've got Saul David on the US Marines in the Pacific. Roger Morehouse is the Aspects of History Book of the Month with Devil's Alliance, the Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939. 
And Peter Hughes chats free speech and writing history in these febrile times of social media and pylons. All three are good friends of the show, so it's great to have them back on. Remember, if you've got any ideas for top 10 families from history, you can get me on the Twitter or email history at aspectsofhistory.com. In the meantime, thank you and good night.